This episode of The Tome Show is brought to you by Noble Knight, where Out of Print is available again. And listeners like you, thanks for using The Tome's Amazon and DMs Guild affiliate links. And to our patrons who support us directly at patreon.com slash the Tome Show. Welcome to The Tome, a D&D news, reviews, and interview show, and I'm your Tomos, Jeff Greiner. And I'm Tracy Hurley, and in this episode, number 298, we're going to become one with nature and call down the storm as we discuss druids. And joining us in this episode, you may recognize him from the Ranger episode we recorded last month. And he is a, a writer and game designer. Welcome back, Brandis Stoddard. Hi, everybody. Sometimes of Tribality, yes? Yes. Is that how we pronounce that? Yep. Okay. <laughs> Tribality.com. It's a great uh, gaming website. Uh, also on the panel with us is the Tome Show's social media manager, Ishmael Alvarez. Welcome back, sir. Good to be back. And lastly, but not leastly, a regular contributor on a few Tome Show shows over the years, the Reverend Lewis Brenton. <laughs> Thank you for having me. It's good to be here again. Awesome. Uh, this is a continuation of our class series, examining each class in depth, and due to the will of our patrons, whom you can join at patreon.com slash the Tome Show, this episode is all about the shape-changing nature... Nature caster? The hey, druid. There you go. <laughs> Before we plant that seed, however, uh, we need to mention our sponsor, Noble Knight, a great supporter of the show. They're also a game store, both in person and online, who specializes in finding out-of-print products, but also has a strong catalog of new products. Our pick for this episode is the novel Prophet of Moonshay, the first book of the Druid Home Trilogy. The Moonshay Trilogy were among the first uh, Forgotten Realms novels ever published. And, <clears throat> excuse me. And this is the first book published following that trilogy, focused on the workings of druids in the Moonshay Isles. If you're looking for some inspiration about druids that druids that aren't just druids but are like really important to the larger society, definitely check out the Moonshay Isles. And if you do so through Noble Knight, be sure to tell them that the Tome Show sent you. Hello. Hello, citizens. Oh, thank goodness. Adventurers, we need a noble knight. Perhaps you can slay the beast of retail and reap the promises of riches. Riches? Yes. Great prices, out-of-print games, the latest releases, and a magic box that converts all of your old loot into cash or new loot. But why? Fantastic. I'll do it. Yes. Well... You see, the beast he kidnapped the mayor and can only be slain by the most noble of knights. Yes, yes, yes. I said I'll do it. Yes, the thing is, I was talking to her. What? Fear not, kind citizen. The noble knight will save the day, rescue the lord in distress, and liberate all that loot in a way only possible at Noble Knight. If you'd like to get your hands on Noble Knight's loot, head over to thetomeshow.com and click on the link in the show notes for this episode. And don't forget to tell them that the Tome Show sent you. Ha! I got to do something to help out. All right, and now it's time to turn into a bear and give a big old hug to druids. 
So I want to start off by just sort of getting some some background of sort of the concept of druids, their place in history, uh, that kind of stuff. So anybody have a have a sense of where druids come from? The the concepts. I think probably the main things that they're playing with are the uh, the, the Roman writings about um, the the Celtic priesthood. Okay, and then also a very um, through smoked glass kind of look at um, Native American traditions, especially when you get into um, mm. some of the uh, uh, the skin changing. Maybe I I don't want to be offensive. I'm super sorry if I'm offensive. I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Well, certainly that's an interesting. Uh, like I've always, I've always thought of druids in the the Celtic um, sort of sense because the name is is comes from there, right? Right. Um, but you're, I, I don't know that you're wrong. I think there's probably some some inspiration to be found in Native American lore as well, uh, and I hadn't really thought of that before. That's really interesting. Ishmael, did you have something you wanted to add to the the history of the druid? Well, speaking a little bit more about where druids come into the game itself, mm-hmm. if I if I remember perhaps some apocryphal um, or not so apocryphal uh, history of Dungeons and Dragons, when they went from simply wargaming to playing what would eventually, I guess, become chainmail, uh, I think the idea was thrown out. Well, what if I have um, a, a military unit is a druid that can call lightning down to smite ele- elephants? Uh, and that was like kind of the first kernel of the idea of like, hey, let's put something supernatural into this, you know, historical war game. And kind of was that that ember that would become the fire that would eventually become Dungeons and Dragons. Mm-hmm. And that's why all druids have call lightning on their spell list. Correct. Or <laughs> right from my recollection anyways. Yeah, yeah. And I guess I'd never heard that story before. Interesting. So druids existed in in the inception before there was D and D when there was chainmail, huh? If I am remembering correctly, which I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna double check that online. Mm-hmm. So so does that mean because I my experience with D and D goes back to second edition A D and D. Does does that mean that druids as a class appear as early as the basic O D and D? Uh, Druids as a class first appear in Eldritch Wizardry, uh, okay. one of the earliest supplements. Uh, they appeared before that as monsters, mm. uh, so to speak, in Supplement 1 Greyhawk. Okay, interesting. So really, really early on right. in uh, OD&D, um, they're, they're showing up. Um, and they're surprisingly rec- recognizable. Um, they, they have changed maybe less than you'd think. Huh. So yeah, I mean, a lot of the the classes in D and D we've we've sort of discovered and discussed. Uh, definitely, like you can track the evolution of the class through the additions. Um, so when you say that they're recognizable, you mean they have you know. Almost cleric-like, nature-based uh, spellcasting and wild shape abilities, because that seems to be the core concept of the druid, right? So, um, so yes, I do mean that. Um, so they they pick up um, shape shifting at sixth level. Mm-hmm. Um, 
here, here again, I'm talking about um, Eldritch Wizardry, and so uh, even level comparison gets a little bit strange, but they have a bunch of um, nature-related knowledge powers uh, starting at second level um, at a time when there was nothing at all like this anywhere else in the system. Even the idea of a knowledge power was just not otherwise attested, hmm. right? Um, they, they just weren't doing anything like that anywhere else. And they could also pass through overgrowth um, you know, really early on like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, they, their, their spell list was a uh, mix of uh, cleric, magic user, and new druid spells. Okay. So, in terms of their spellcasting, they were sort of a mid-step between the cleric and the magic user. Yeah, they they're they're uh, they're taking up a similar area of design space. It seems like um, nature magic versus divine magic with the cleric, but almost in the exact same space. I'm sure a lot of guys think about it this way, like I do. I. I see the, all the different classes on a spectrum of more fighty or more magic-y, and uh, I see these two guys parked right next to each other. Um, these, uh, would, by these guys, you mean the, the cleric and the uh, the cleric and, and the druid. druid? Okay, yeah. Uh, I would say that the the cleric has had a little bit of an edge in fighting over the druid for most of D and D's history because of the. Um, better types of armor they're allowed to wear but now that's true yeah. that's true they uh they they can go straight toe-to-toe melee mm. although the the uh the druid can get there using a lot of his spells especially in fifth edition with the cantrips he's running these days for sure for sure yeah well and certainly in in newer editions and uh like fifth <clears throat> and we'll talk about this as we get into the mechanics in a second um, but when you get into some of the crazy th- craziness you can pull off with wild shape, especially if you take the right uh, druid circles, um, then then that can certainly give a a fightery edge to the druid. Although it's a it's a different style of fighter than the fighter is, right? Right. I would I would definitely agree that the circle of the moon um, is more like having a different kind of fighter in the party. Right. And it's generating it, just anyway. so many hit points. Yes. Very good. So that's sort of the the history of the Druid. Uh, without getting into the, the history of what the Celtic Druids were, I guess. Um, do, does anybody yes. feel... Oh, yeah, Tracy? I was just going to say, one thing that struck me in reading uh, the description of the class, and I think kind of points to the kind of strange history of, of the Druid in a way in D&D, which just, it, it seemed to be all over the place with what it is in terms of, like, in, in the setting, within the setting. Mm. Because, like, on one hand, it says it's the balance of the four elements. Um, but then most of the stuff doesn't really actually tie back to any sort of balance of the elements, if that makes sense. Right. Yeah, well, and there's a lot of... No, go ahead. Oh, sorry. I wanted to uh, go ahead and correct myself earlier. So that that uh, whole bit about the elephant and the druid is actually attributed to Dave Arneson. Okay. So kind of a little a parallel evolution uh-huh. there. Hmm. Very good. Uh, so yeah. So 
I also read through the the reread through the description here of the druid uh, like Tracy did before uh, recording just to, to refresh my memory on on these things and what it actually says because so often when you, when I read players' handbooks for the first time right I, I skip over the flavor text like I know what a druid have, druid is I've been playing the game a long time um, or at least I know what to expect it to be but there is like this. Um, you know, it's it's the power of nature, but it's also this balance thing, and it's kind of taking some of the different archetypes of druids that have been uh, prevalent over the years, and kind of saying, well, druids are kind of all of those, and sometimes it is, sometimes I, mean, I guess it's the, in the places where it's contradictory, then you, um, I guess you have to pick what kind of druid you want to play, right? Yeah, very much so, and and especially with with fifth edition, you've got the uh, the two <clears throat> subclasses that are in the player's handbook, and they. It's hard for me to think of subclasses that are more different mm. um, in in any of the player's handbook classes than than the two main druid subclasses, which are the uh, the the land and the uh, the moon, the uh-huh. circle of the land and the circle of the moon. One is so incredibly wizardy and the other one is very very martial right so let's talk about the mechanics and, and things for fifth edition we can also talk about the the other things i also on a side note i enjoyed the fact going back through this noticing how much the temple of elemental evil pops up in the in the examples given in the druid description which made me think that this was them laying um seeds or easter eggs for the adventure that came out uh what is it uh prince of the apocalypse Yes, um, letting us know that, that that see see we were thinking about that right, uh, but <laughs> but if you look at the the sort of key features to me of the fifth edition druid, it's actually one of the simpler classes that exists to me, um, at least as a core class because. When I list the key features in other in other classes preparing for these episodes, I tend to have a list of like four or five, six things. Uh, for the druid, I basically just have spellcasting and wild shape. Like there's some other stuff in there too, but it's all like really high level stuff, like you know, 18th level, 9th and 20th level stuff um, that almost nobody ever sees. So uh, the the wild shape and the spellcasting really cover the the concepts until you get into the these specific circles does that seem fair i think yeah. that's basically correct uh, maybe surprisingly the warlock is uh fairly similar on that point uh you, you know pretty much you're getting spellcasting and other invocations over there here it's spellcasting and wild shape yeah although i i mean i would argue that the warlock can get a, a little, uh, significantly more complicated if only in the fact that when you're taking those invocations or whatever, like it's a it's a small feat list basically of new things to uh, add, right? It's a quite a, oh, a, for a sure. varied menu. I'm more saying just that it's a fungible, yeah, unspecified thing. You know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And in terms of something to really sort of understand and wrap your head around, it's probably about about as simple uh, because ultimately uh, you've got a menu of invocations in the warlock and the the druid arguably has a much larger menu of things to choose from in its wild shape because it can turn into all kinds of different things, right? At second level, it's rel- the, the menu's a little bit smaller because the maximum CR is one-fourth, but then it gets up to one-half and then eventually uh, CR one. So you're not going to turn into anything crazy, 
with the core druid, but we'll talk about the moon druid in a second, right? Sure. So, but, so yeah, Tracy. Oh, I was just wondering, I haven't had a chance to play uh, either a druid or in a group with a druid, but do we know it? Because the, obviously, like, in battle, the one quarter is not great, but outside, like, just when you're role-playing or something, I feel like it could easily help players, like, the party to get around mm. some DM stuff. Yeah, like, absolutely. You know, so I I played a druid, and, like, I don't play very often. I, know, I mostly DM. But the one time I've played since, I think, since 5th edition came out, I played a multi-class druid cleric, uh, and it was a nature-y cleric domain, right? Um, right. So, that, so they were role-playing-wise in conjunction. And the wild shape for my character was not a combat feature. It was a stealth feature. It was a getting past barriers feature. It was a, you know, turn into a mouse and sneak under the door. It was, you know, it was, it was, we need to figure out how to fit, you know, five characters onto one griffin's back without breaking its back. We'll all turn into, you know, a small snake and hide and just sit in your pocket for a while or whatever, that kind of stuff. Sure. Yeah. So so it, yeah n- yes it's very very useful in in, in those regards uh, in my experience and in fact that would be one of my big pieces of advice uh, when playing a druid is um, don't th- assume that wild shape is a combat feature like it certainly can be if you take uh, druid of the moon uh, but otherwise like it's it's a really useful exploration and navigation and problem solving feature to me. Yeah, very much so. Um, I prior to the, the first party I ran in fifth edition didn't have a druid, but we had a wizard, and we talked about the wizard being the Swiss Army knife because of all the different spell mm. tools he has. But as I did my reading in preparation for this conversation, I've, I'm kind of seeing the druid as a different but comparable Swiss Army knife. Mm. You can just do a whole lot of things. You know, like you mentioned, the stealth applications and the spying <clears throat> applications and, hey, there's a cockroach on the wall, but is he watching us? You right. know, <laughs> those kind of things. Yeah. Well, because Wild Shape lasts a long time, right? I'm trying to remember. What is it? It's like a, an hour or something. A number of hours equal to half your druid level. Uh, right. It down. So, I mean, by the time you get it, you can be this for an hour. That's a lot of snooping around the castle or the dungeon or whatever. And, and who's going to look at another rat running through the place, right? And if something does grab you and take a bite out of you, uh, you get knocked down to zero hit points, you turn back into your druid, you know? Right. And then you kick the mess out of that cat that grabbed you or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or it startles them enough that you wild shape again and you, you get the heck out of there. Yeah. Absolutely. So, so yeah. we, we talked a bit about Wild Shape, and Wild Shape gets better over time. Not only does the CR go up, but you go from uh, not having any flying or swimming speeds to by 4th level you can take things with, with swim speeds, and by 8th level you can, you can turn into something that flies. Now, I always uh, ran it and, and determined as a DM that that doesn't mean like at 2nd level you can't turn into a sparrow. You just can't sort of grok the idea of flying as a sparrow yet right so you can turn into one and just sort of cluck around on the ground if you want to uh sure. for whatever that's worth but a sparrow that is functionally an ostrich right well not even an ostrich uh, a, yeah right a, a baby a baby chicken right <laughs> right right there you go so 
But yeah, so, uh, so that's Wild Shape, and, and it has all kinds of things that go on. Uh, like, generally speaking, you can't cast spells um, uh, because your most beast forms are limited. Like, you either don't have the hands to do hand gestures, or you don't have the ability to speak, and, and generally speaking, spells require those kinds of things. Um, fifth edition is nice in that it gives you lots of freedom in terms of what happens to your equipment. It can either be worn by whatever beast you turn into, it can sort of merge with whatever beast you turn into, or you can turn into it and sort of leave all that stuff behind, which allows for those sort of iconic scenes of of the spellcaster who shrinks down and turns into a mouse and comes skittering out of the pant leg or whatever, right? Sure. It's not, But it's not real useful, generally speaking, in game, right? Most of the time in game, I want my equipment to be safe when I'm in another form, and so uh, you make that happen, right? Right, yeah, that would be very aggravating if it wasn't that way. Right. Now, by later levels, that's when we're talking about those 18th level abilities, right? By the time you get to 18th level, you stop aging normally and you are able to to cast all your spells in beast form. Uh, But at that level, you are crazy powerful. Yes. Yeah, Yeah. and and it mentions that uh, in beast form, you can't do things with materials, but... Man, half the DMs or more that I know don't use the material components of spells anyway. Uh, well, and I would argue consumable. Uh, yeah, as a DM, I guess I would argue it depends on what you turn into, right? If right. If, if you turn into a a chimpanzee or something, right, then then you you have the opposable thumbs to be able to manipulate sure. material components. Sure. Uh, now, can a chimpanzee speak? Eh, I'd I'd be a little more questionable about that. So you don't have your verbal component there, but right, right. Yeah, so as long as you're a chimpanzee with a fanny pack, you got all your materials and you're ready to roll. Right. <laughs> yeah. Do we, do we want to talk about the aspect of like your equipment and Wild Shape? Yes. If you have something else to add, please do. Oh, no, it's just interesting because you have options, right? Because you can decide to have your equipment kind of meld with you as you change. Mm-hmm. You can decide to just drop all your equipment. Uh or, or the third one was potentially wear it while you're in your wild shape, but it was really up to the DM as to whether How that was work, possible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and I kind of mentioned that a little bit earlier, right? So, um, yeah. yeah. So yeah, yeah. Well, and and being able to wear it becomes important when you recognize that. Well, I want to have, I want to be in my beast form, but still have the benefits of that ring or that amulet or whatever. Um, right. And and. Sometimes you can't have those benefits if you're not if they merge into your body, sort of thing. Uh, you know, a snake probably can't wear a belt. Right. <laughs> a snake can't wear a belt. A snake is a belt. <laughs> oh my! <laughs> but then there's also the 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 combat aspect does come into play a little bit with the wild shape because um, it's it's kind of free hit points. Right, you you turn into your wild shape. You gain the hit points of the creature you turn into, um, and then when the hit points of the creature are reduced to zero, you revert back into a druid, and the damage you took as that creature does not apply. Like the overflow applies, right? So if I have five hit points and I take ten points of damage, I turn back into a druid and I take five, right? Um, but all that damage you took as whatever the creature is is just gone. 
Yeah, that's right. And that's also a helpful thing with the circle of the moon druid in that way, in that because we've just been talking about how and, until you're very high level, you can't cast spells in be- while you're in beast mode. Mm-hmm. But the moon druid can burn those spell slots to heal while he's in beast mode. Right. Which is so he can really crank out the damage absorption at that point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and, well, and then of course, by the time you get to twentieth level, you uh, uh, a well designed druid just basically has infinite hit points, right? Because yeah, because, because you can wild shape an unlimited number of times, and it lasts for like ten hours. Uh, so every time you take damage enough to, or every time you're about to to drop down to losing your beast form and sent back to druid, you just wild shape into something else. And if you're a moon druid, you do it as a bonus action. It doesn't even take take up an action to do it. You just, oh, well, I'm in water elemental form and I'm about to be knocked out of it. I'll quickly turn into a fire elemental or whatever, right? Uh, and then you start back over. So you have an infinite number of hit points. Yeah, yeah I would describe that as maybe the, the best thing. That might be a little horrifically broken. <laughs> and and that was uh, I mean people noticed that like really early on uh, in fifth edition is that it, well and in fairness like my response to the, to that as being broken is is okay but you're twentieth level so if you're not basically a superhero at that point then you're playing the game wrong you know? sure you're more of a <laughs> so, superhero than any other class maybe maybe yeah. Well, and I noticed that the way they've got the druid, both on the the moon side of it and on the uh, the land side, in those two subclasses, mm-hmm. it's the the features of it are heavily weighted in the first ten levels as compared to the the higher levels. And I think they're acknowledging the reality that a very small percentage of groups run run their run parties from level one to level twenty. Yeah, and there's been a few classes mm-hmm. that I've run into that are kind of that way. Um, I don't know that we talked about it in the warlock episode. But I've had a warlock in my game for a while now, and um, that player's experience is such that he suddenly discovered that the warlock gets kind of boring after 10th level because there's not a lot going on. That's mm. a problem. Uh, and, and Druid kind of has that problem, except their spell progression continues at the same pace, right? Yep. So there's yes. less stuff going on after 10th level, but you're always adding new spells, so... Uh, Druid, to, in, to my mind, because Warlocks never gain very many spells anyway, uh, Druids, to my mind, uh, use magic to to um, get through a lot of uh, a little bit of that anyway. Uh, and speaking of their spell casting, we didn't really talk about that feature uh, very much. Uh, it basically functions like uh, cleric spell casting, right? It's wisdom based. Uh, it's it's mm-hmm. honestly even at least partially a similar spell list, but it's got more naturey stuff mixed in there too. Uh, but it all, but it, druids make a good uh, healing class. Um, I've been in parties that have no cleric, uh, but a druid substitutes in for a cleric pretty well. Like clerics are better healers, but druids are good enough most of the time. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and druids are pretty good healers. And when you get over to the Xanathar's uh, subclasses, they uh-huh. get really good at healing. What What does the Xanathar's guide offer that makes druids even better at healing? Uh, Circle of Dreams gets a uh, bonus healing pool mm. that is sort of like a ranged lay on hands. Okay. It's phenomenal. Um, so they don't have to spend, you know, spell slots. Um, yeah, they've got a bunch of dice, kind of like a, a bard would. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Um, 
but uh, but also with uh, druid spells, a, a big part of what they pick up with the naturey stuff is a ton of area control. Yeah. Uh, if you are fighting, you know, a, a literal army of opponents, um, a, a druid is as good as or better than a wizard for just ruining their day. Well, and there's some of that sort of evocation, like call down the lightning, literally with call lightning, right? Uh, sort of spells that they can they can blast uh, a lot of enemies and what have you. But they also have a lot of the the if I can go to fourth edition terms, right? They can, they have a lot of those controller sort of abilities to control yep. the battlefield, to put up the entangle and, and, or that kind of stuff, where suddenly this becomes difficult terrain and and the the vines try to grab you and um, possibly do damage to you and and that kind of stuff, right? Uh, for sure. I mean, in fourth edition, they were a controller class, right? And 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 this is a situation where, like, sometimes fourth edition, those roles were in my mind like, oh, we need something for this role in this type. But the druid seems to be like one of the classes they made that role for, if, if that makes sense, right? Like, the druid was a controller before there was an, a concept of a controller. Yep. Yeah. Uh, the the absence of healing in fourth edition, aside from one power, is really strange, because there were healers all the way back. Yeah, and they have been for a long time. And in fifth edition, they they can be again. Uh, yep. So we've kind of hinted at the two uh, circles at this point, right? The, those are the d- different builds for the druid you have the circle of the land and the circle of the moon to my my summary of each is that the circle of the land is a druid who focuses on the spell casting feature and the circle of the moon is the druid who focuses on the wild shape feature right if those are the two key features of the druid one of the circles does one of them even better and one of them does the other one even better exactly now, the Circle of the Land gets a little bit of other stuff, right? They, now, uh, w- somebody mentioned the idea that um, that Druids have had, had the ability to sort of walk through difficult terrain and that kind of stuff since the early days. This is where that comes out, right? The, the Land Stride power comes out uh, for a six-level Circle of the Land Druid where they can pass through difficult terrain with, with little trouble. Or if you're in a, in a magical area like an Entanglement, they at least get advantage on their saving throws against it, so... They're a lot harder to sort of trip up. But other than that, it's mostly like you get bonus spells. You can use your spell slots to do these other things or to recover the spell. Uh, use your – what is it? Uh, natural recovery allows you to regain some of your spells uh, and that kind of stuff. So so it's just you casting more spells and getting access to more spells is sort of the key bit of the Circle of the Land. And which kind of extra bonus spells you get is sort of like a, a cleric domain in that there's a list depending on what your land type is. What kind of druid are you? Are you Arctic, coastal, desert, forest, grassland, mountain, swamp, or underdark? Yeah, absolutely. And because they have access to the entire, like if you level one spell slots, that's okay. Each day you have access to the entire spell list for level one and level two, which means by the time you've got third level um, and you've got level two spell slots, you you can pick from 34 spells each day. Mm -hmm. I I counted that up earlier. And again, there's that Swiss army knife part of it. And with the circle of the land guys, they also... They kind of have a sub-subclass, like you were mentioning, but mm-hmm. depending on their native terrain, because they get extra 
spell features depending on where they came from. Yeah, no, that native terrain, though, it's worth noting, doesn't really play into anything else. It just determines what bonus spells you get. So um, it doesn't, you know, it's not like the the ranger that has these things where you pick your favorite enemies and that kind of stuff, and it kind of pops up in a few different areas. Uh, That's right. In, in this case, like, you pick your terrain, and it only affects what spells you get. So uh, it... In my experience, like I chose when I played a druid, I chose I played a circle of the land druid, and I chose my favorite terrain based off of which spells I wanted, not the other way around. Sure. Um, and then I could justify whatever the terrain was. And it's also worth noting that while you add these bonus spells, you get them at different levels than they're usually listed. Right. So I played a, a circle of the land mountain druid. Uh, because I was all about like storms and, and lightning and that kind of stuff, right? And they get access to things like lightning bolt there, which was uh, super useful. But we're used to lightning bolt being a third level spell, and it is not for the Circle of the Land Druid. It is a fifth level spell. No, um, no, that's not what that says. It's not? No, no, you just get it when you are a fifth level druid. Oh, you, well, okay, you get, get it when you're a fifth level druid. Okay. Yeah, you get it without it counting as one of your prepared spells, but it doesn't mean you don't have... Like, you could get it no. at third level if it's on the Druid list, which I assume it is. Well, it's good to clear is that up. Lightning Bolt? I, I, lightning may, have, bolt. I may but, have, I may uh, have oh, played a Druid wrong for, like, months. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Well, is lightning bolt, what, what level spell is Lightning Bolt? Third. Third level. Well, now it's not on their spell list, so that's not for, so for them... Practically speaking, it is a fifth level spell. Right. Then. Yeah, but okay. it's a it's a third level spell because lightning bolt is always a third level spell in fifth ed. Sure. No one ever you always get it when you're fifth level. Then third level spell. Right. But when you are a fifth level druid, you get third level spell you slots. Get third level mm-hmm. spell slots. Yeah. Right. And you get lightning bolt. Okay. So I I, I misspoke. I'm I am happy to be corrected. Or or perhaps I misremembered. I don't know. That was a long time ago. Uh, so that's that's more or less the circle of the land druid. Anybody have anything to add to that? Uh, uh, let's well, see. I would say that they uh, really have some some strong fictional connections to um, two particular characters that are often interpreted as wizards, but don't have to be. Okay. Um, you know, Merlin and Gandalf. Mm-hmm. Those those two you usually call the wizards because most texts call them wizards, but are they? Are they? <laughs> I mean, I mean they, also they, Radagast. At least, yeah. at, le- at least with uh, Merlin, I think you could argue it depends on the depiction, uh, right. because Merlin is originally uh, derived from Celtic myth anyway, uh, and so it would make a lot of sense for the concept of a druid to fit really well with uh, concepts of Merlin. Sure. And I, I would consider the Excalibur movie Merlin to be a druid mm-hmm. rather than a wizard. Or even the uh, the Sword in the Stone uh, car- Disney cartoon Merlin uh, could mm-hmm. very easily be a wizard with that whole uh, shape-changing scene with, uh, with the witch. Oh, ah, sure. yeah, yeah. Oh. Jeff, did you want to talk about Nature's Sanctuary? I don't think we did. We didn't. Tell us about it. That's their that's their higher level circle power. It's a, it's the fourteenth level uh, class ability. Yeah, so at fourteenth level, um, basically, beast or plant creatures have to make a saving throw uh, if they try to attack you. If they fail it, they can't attack you. Um, they can't atta- decide to attack someone else. Uh, but if they pass, then they're immune to to 
to giving you sanctuary, basically. Right. Because so, they sense the, the the story behind it is that they sense the connection you have to nature, and thus they have to think twice about whether or not to attack you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, and there's a lot of uh, story that we've sort of not talked directly to as we've talked about all these mechanical abilities, but there's a lot of story built into a lot of this, right? Uh, even the circle of the land concept is just a matter of this is sort of your native land and, and you're connected to it because of who you are and your your uh, desire to be sort of connected to the, the primal spirit of the land, if you will, sort of thing. And as such, those spirit that spirit um, infuses you with additional magical ability based on on what the land is. Sure. Yeah. There, there's a lot of narration and a lot of plot points just right there. Mm-hmm. Just, there, you you walked into the game preloaded with. Yeah, and and it's not like it's not preloaded in the same way that like a warlock is because patrons bring in auto, the this this automatic sort of like storyline that is being told, right? Um, yes. But there's certainly a lot of seeds here, if you will. Seeds, druids, get it. Uh, but but on top of that there's a lot of great uh, a lot there's a couple of great uh, sidebars for druids as well Uh, there's one about you know druids with sacred plants or sacred wood or what have you and and that gives some hints as to some of the the traditions um, uh, cultural traditions that the druid is kind of being inspired by and it talks about different sort of whether it's it's um, your druid who who finds an affinity with you wood which is associated with death and rebirth or whether um you're a desert druid and you're more associated with like the yucca tree or cactus plants or whatever there are sacred plants or woods or whatever to the druids and that adds a lot of interesting um sort of flavor that you could add to your druid and then the second sidebar deals with how druids as sort of divine casters, at least they have been in previous editions, it's not necessarily directly called out here, right? Because they're drawing energy from nature. Um, but druids and gods have some some interesting overlap as well because they're kind of sort of divine casters still. Uh, and there's, you know, there's nature gods. So it makes sense that, that a, a nature god would have an interest in uh, somebody who's running around that attuned to nature, you know? Uh, so we haven't talked about the second uh, circle very much. Well, I mean, we've we've hinted at it a lot, but let's talk about the circle of the moon more specifically. What does the circle of the moon give you other than making you really good at the wild shape thing? Sure. Well, it makes wild shape kind of your thing in the sense that uh, for the regular, the regular core wild shape power, it costs you an action. While for the circle of the moon druid, it's a it's a bonus action, so he can get right into it and turn into a bear and eat your face at the same turn, which is what we're all looking for in life. And uh, <laughs> and then of course, as I mentioned before, he can he can heal himself by spending those spell slots, which would otherwise be kind of a useless or a, a less useful feature if you're going to be in in wolf form all day long and can't cast spells until you're a very high level. Um, so he's got a he's got his own hit point generator built into him, which is a nice feature. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because yeah. if you're in beast form all the time, you can't really cast spells until you right. get to that high level. So you might as well use him for something. Yeah, got to burn burn him up on something. Mm-hmm. And then of course he can get into much tougher forms much more quickly because he ignores the uh, he uses a different challenge rating chart than the the core wild shape ability. 
So mm-hmm. um, nor- the normal second level wild shape is a one quarter challenge rating, but for this guy, he goes straight to one. Um, he still can't swim or fly, and at fourth, he still can't fly. But by the time he gets to sixth, um, it's your level divided by three. So at a, at sixth level, he can do challenge rating two stuff and. He can fly at level eight, and by level nine, he's doing challenge rating three stuff, and then challenge rating four stuff by level 12, and he has got quite the zoo that he can transform into at that mm-hmm. point. Yeah, because the CR increasing just a, a, a one or two points can, can significantly increase the number of things you can turn into. Um, oh, yes. So, so And there's also a point where... Um, what is it? 10th level, you can start expend, you expend two wild shapes and you turn into an elemental. Uh, and it's worth noting that despite uh, Lewis's predilection for, for the use of he, uh, women can be druids just as much. In fact, the one, <laughs> the one pictured on the page is a, is a woman. That, that's a good point. That's right. <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking of myself as a druid specifically. Because sure. <laughs> yeah. I, I get real excited. I have a problem with this. Every class I read about and every Tome Show episode I hear, I'm like, right. man, this is the best class ever. I'm, just, I'm so infinitely charmed everything I read like that. And so at this moment, druids are the best thing in the world, and that's all I want to play. Yeah, I, ha- I have that experience every time we do one of these episodes, and I'm in all of them, right? So, <laughs> so like, I was even like... I was not interested in paladins at all. And then we did the episode. It's like, oh, man, I have like seven good ideas for a paladin now, you know? So, <laughs> yes. Yes, that is uh, the beauty of D&D right there, man. Right, right there. They, they did a better job on these classes than I probably gave them credit for when the books first came out. I'll tell you what. Mm. I'll agree. Yeah. Yeah, I thoroughly agree. Uh, and then the, la- the last sort of circle of the moon power is the is the 14th level one where it's – you're so good at shape changing that you just kind of get to use the alter alter self spell at will and just sort of tweak your features here and there basically to uh, you know easy disguise, right? Oh yeah, absolutely. Well, alter self is a lot more than disguising. It is all kinds of hmm. uh, tacking on crazy features. You want flippers? You want wings? You got you want claws? But the rest Gills. of your human form is normal. Right. Go for it. That's true. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Like, I, if uh, it, it, it's a, it's it's okay. a problem solving uh, a Swiss Army knife even more so than, or even just as much as the wild shape because you just yep. don't have to change into the creature to do it now. Yep. And I wonder, can you alter self while you're in animal form? Because it would be crazy to see, like, I don't know, a tiger with gills, or. <laughs> Uh, an, um, an elephant with wings. I just I wonder if that's something that it would allow you to do. Can we just go ahead and speculate right now that that's where the first owlbear came from? <laughs> <laughs> and, and a lot of alcohol, yes. Yeah. To answer the question, you can do that once you hit 18th level. Because you can cast spells while in beast form. Yep. So if you were ever going to be a shark with friggin' laser beams, that's your moment. <laughs> Oh, that's right, because at 14th level, you can't alter yourself as a beast because you can't cast spells as a beast. Right. Yes. Good call. Did we did we mention at all the caveat with the spells? Like, you can't cast spells, but changing into beast form doesn't break your concentration necessarily. Right. So, so this, any spells that you've already cast are can still be in effect. So you, I, I've, I've seen many a moon druid, like, start a combat with a round or two of just sort of layering your few spells on and then wild shaping and, and getting into fighting form, you know? Um, Elemental wild shape is also boss as hell, and we just need to 
give some respect to that real quick. <laughs> Being able to turn into an elemental? Why would that be good? What are you talking about? <laughs> I mean, yeah, well, it's even more Swiss Army knifey if we can t- turn that into an adjective. Um, and it's also, it kind of feeds the narrative of maybe the balance thing, mm. you know, since they're, they're, there's way too much fire in this room. So what's obviously needed is a watcher elemental or something like that. It just, mm. it all flowed. The mechanics and the narrative really go well with this particular class. Well, Although I think I would be inclined to, hey, there's a lot of fire in this room. I'll turn into a fire elemental. Now I'm immune to it. You know, so. Yeah, that's a good point too. Well, earth elemental is also the source of your highest armor class. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, because they can melt people through aren't known for a really good AC. Right. Good for exploration straight through the stone walls. Uh, air elemental would be would be just about as stealthy as any animal you could turn into because how visible is air, right? Mm-hmm. Although you'd have to be real still. <laughs> Maybe a mouse would still be sneakier. I don't know. So, all right. So, well, we—I mean—we've gone through the the whole what three pages or so of druid class features. Anything else that mechanically that we haven't talked about yet? Hmm. Mechanically, I, I can't. I can't think of anything. No. Like, like we said, it, it's kind of one of mm-hmm. the simpler classes. Ironically, uh, you don't usually mm-hmm. think of a spell casting casting class that can uh, wild shape into into an infinite number of animals as being um, a simpler class, but. I mean, other than maybe some of the fighter builds, it mm-hmm. seems to be one of the more straightforward ones to, to figure out. So, Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And you just have access to so many different cool things. And I just realized, think of talking about the elemental thing, that's your way to get into a CR5 form right there. Because mm-hmm. uh, those yeah, elementals are all challenge rating 5. Um, what, like five levels early? Right. So that's that's pretty exciting. Mm-hmm. And I feel like if Dan Dillon were here, like he was for the Ranger episode, he would have exactly a, a list of exactly which uh, animals you should have sort of on the back of your head and to turn into in whatever situations. Because in the same way for a Beastmaster Ranger, he's figured out sort of uh, best options for animal companions. Um, does anybody have any particular, um, at least combat-driven animals or wild shape forms that you think would be ideal? Well, you certainly cap out at Mammoth. Uh, with CR6 mm. uh, at 18th level, uh, it's, it's going to be sort, sort of tough to beat, right? Uh, Although Mammoth is, limited in, li- Mammoth is limited in space. Like, that may not be useful in a dungeon. That's fair. <laughs> so. Unless uh, you intend to take up the whole hallway. Right. <laughs> and it is worth noting, and, and I ran into this when I played a druid, that... that Wild shape is not polymorph, right? It's a lot more limited in terms of what you can turn into. Uh, it has to be uh, a beast type creature. So you're relatively limited on your CR, uh, and then you're also on top of that limited um, in terms of what type of creature you can turn into. But if you look through the list, and depending on what your sources are, right, between the the monster manual. Uh, Volo's Guide, the Tome of Beasts, uh, there's a, a wealth of options available for you that are, are less listed as beasts. And it and like I think I would encourage people to consider the the Swiss Army ness uh, possibilities of it, right? Um, you know, it, it, even if you're going for something combat wise, 
do you need something that has some sort of an attack that can hit multiple creatures or has mul- you know has a claw claw bite thing going on and can hit two or three things if they need to or do you need to do a lot of damage to to one creature or um, is poison going to be useful like all of those things are things to consider when you look at the myriad yes. list yeah and that'd be a play tip i'd have for somebody who's who's running one of these guys is to just make a whole bunch of photocopies of all the different potential animals so that you can be skimming through your catalog at any given moment thinking, okay, is Velociraptor the thing to do right now? Or is yeah. it, you know, so, so, cause you may not think of it all. I mean, you, it's not hard to think of Panther or whatever, but man, you know, what if ostrich is the thing in this moment or whatever yeah. else, you know, um, and, and we're transitioning buffet available. We're yeah. transitioning into tips a little bit here and that's, that's good. Cause that's yeah. where I want to go next. But, um, I think that, I think that's worth keep bearing in mind because it could get real tired real fast, um, uh, to sit or have everybody sitting around waiting for the Druid to look through the monster manual to figure out what the heck they want to wild shape into. Right. Yes. Uh, so having a list of, of half a dozen stat blocks already copied or take a picture on with your phone or whatever out of the monster manual, um, because otherwise that can get just as tiresome as, um, your wizard not having looked up their spell before their turn and having to wait for them to find it and read it and figure out, oh, that's not what I want. Let me look for something else. And like that can be a drag for everybody, right? And, and the right. druid can be the same way. So so while you can turn into a, a roughly infinite number of things, right? Uh, maybe pick out your, your five to ten favorite and have those stat blocks ready to go. And from there, like... Maybe I want to turn into a panther, but there's no panther stat block. But there is other great cats, so you can just sort of reskin what you've got to sort of match there. And as long as the the DM's cool with that, so yeah, absolutely. Well, and over in Xanathar's guide, um, they sort of paid some some lip service to how much that data management can be kind of crushing on the player, right? and turned it into a sort of uh, learning of animal forms the way a wizard learns spells, in a sense. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can really turn it into things you've uh, seen and learned. Yeah, which is that, also always made sense to me. a way to lock out dinosaurs. Well, right, yeah, and that's always made a lot of sense to me, right? Because how do you turn into a thing that you've only vaguely heard about? How do you even know for sure what it looks like? What? Well, I think in the player's handbook it says you've had to have seen it, right. but yeah. So if you've got uh, some villain right, with a right. with a menagerie or a zoo, like you've got a druid who's very happy. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> right. That's uh, without a uh, sort of predefined way to say what did you see in your character uh, backstory, mm-hmm. there's some open question, uh, and I think a lot of room for argument that they wanted to settle. Yeah. And I don't know if they, they – I can't remember um, if they dealt with it there. But this is also something that DMs could use as hooks to, to bring players to different areas too. Say like, hey, we've heard that this thing that you really want to change into has been seen and blah. Yep. It makes me think yeah, of sure. hunters and WoW going to search for that one you know best pet model. <laughs> and I, I love that kind of content. I'm so here for it. 
Well, and that's why everybody wants to take what, whatever druid character they have and make sure that's the character they run in Tomb of Annihilation, because then you can pick up those dinosaurs, right? Yes, that's what I was just <laughs> thinking, man. Set one of those guys loose in the jungles of Cholt, and we're going to have an exciting time. Yeah. Man. Now, if if I'm a druid up uh, up in the Dale Lands, but I meet another druid who knows how to turn into a velociraptor, can I see his velociraptor and turn into it? Oh. Is there some sort of uh, law of transference of beast forms uh, for druids? Uh, there needs to be clone degradation, right? Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Has I, one too many fingers or whatever. Yeah, I think we have to leave that call up to the DM. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, let's yeah. talk about uh, about how to play a druid. Uh, we sort of talked a little bit about some of these things. and I, I talked about some of my bad practices of like – picking my my land form and a land druid based off of the what spells I wanted instead of uh, picking what made the most sense for my story and then picking you know just taking the spells that were there um, but but what tips do we have in terms of making a good or interesting druid where can we look to for inspiration we mentioned things like Merlin and Gandalf um, so so how do you play a druid mm. Mm, crickets <laughs> I can, uh, so, I can tell you what I did and then and let people think a second. Uh, mm-hmm. So when I played a druid, I had a, a concept of I wanted to mix the the storm cleric, the, what is it, the tempest cleric, mm-hmm. with, with a with a druid concept. With, so it was it was a naturey destruction sort of cleric with a naturey druid um, who was you know maybe a little bit crazy or whatever, but that's that's a thing. Um, sure. Uh, and I think that is a and, and he was a he was the the hermit type right um, until uh, you know the the great prophecy happened and things were going crazy and uh, it gave my my DM a lot of hooks because he was he was a worshiper of the storms itself uh, and so that was sort of his thing and we were playing through uh, the the tyranny of dragons storyline and so he sort of just added into this bit about it, about how uh, Tiamat, who is uh, attempting to break free, has stolen the storms. Like, it hasn't rained in the land for months, and the storms won't come. And so it's suddenly like my character was suddenly hooked, right? Uh, I'm a druid, and I'm all about the storms and the rains, and that's my that's my focus, and that's my thing. And so uh, it's suddenly like I, he wouldn't let the thing go. He grabbed onto it like a rabid dog. Um, cause the storms need to be released and Tiamat has stolen them. And so there's lots of interesting little hooks that you can add like that. Um, sure. You know, another, another place to look, uh, and I'm, I, I didn't come up with this myself, but the, my nephew in one of the games I played, he runs a druid and to, to give the whole idea away, he named his druid Tarzan. Which uh-huh. kind of gives you the idea. Um, someone who's very in touch with nature, um, always make sure talk with animals is on the spell list, mm-hmm. and uh, work in that angle of it mm-hmm. of very buddy with animals, heavy thinking about think about it in those kind of terms. Um, so that's another way to do it. Besides just turning yourself into animals, is being Tarzan, Lord of the Jungle, and making every animal your friend and. Having lots of animal buddies running around with you. Huh. It's not from the historical uh, yeah. aspect of it, but uh, the Bear and the Nightingale, which we read for the Tome Book Club recently, mm-hmm. um, ha- does have some aspects to it uh, based more on 
like Russian mythology, yeah. uh, but the spirit that's the that's in the stable is also one and the same with the horses in a lot of ways. So if uh, basically they're talking about, I, I would just call them like house gnomes or house goblins or something. But uh, if if that's not taken care of, that's how spirit isn't taken care of. Then like the horses suddenly are upset all the time and stuff mm. like that. And uh, in the story, the girl. Uh, feeds these creatures, these uh, creatures, Domovoy, and um, eventually the horses decide to, like, teach her how to ride without a saddle and how to speak horse. So, I think you can take inspiration from there, too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Cool. I would love yeah. that. And, there, and that brings up an interesting point. Like, we often, like, I, I described my, my sort of hermit druid, and that is absolutely an archetype, and, and arguably a, a common archetype uh, for the druid is the nature person who goes off on their own and is forced into some sort of adventure, right? Um, but I think there's other usable uh, archetypes that could be used for druid as well, and they don't have to all be nature hermits. It could be somebody who who lives in in on an estate or in a town or whatever, but but for whatever reason develops um, this this almost supernatural connection to the land. Or um, I once actually played a a druid that um, inhabited and took care of a large park in the middle of a city. Um, you know. The Druid introduction information, background information, gives a lot of concepts as well um, in that, you know, that concept of balance isn't just necessarily a balance of the elements and that kind of stuff. There can also be the balance of nature versus man. And so um, the, the... this is not the the stereotype evil druid that wants to destroy all the cities. This is the druid who's like, cities are fine, but like, there's a little bit of urban sprawl going on here. We need to figure out how to pare this down and live more in in tune with nature and not disrupt it, sort of thing. So there's a lot of, of things that can go there. Any other ideas for so, inspiration? So in fourth edition, um, I played a druid for several levels, and I absolutely love this character. I'm still in love with the fourth edition druid. I'm not. I'm not ashamed at all. Um, <laughs> and he was just an elven warrior. Like he had the Druid class, but in every you know psychological sense, he was a warrior for his people. He was a Valinar elf in Eberron. And like, he was all about, um, you know, earning glory the way a Valinar elf is supposed to. It's just, you know, he was expressing that through the through shape shifting and spellcasting, um, and it made perfect sense because hey, elf, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and sure. and um, you you mentioned Valinar, so I assume that that was an Eberron campaign. Yeah. And and druids in Eberron brings up a whole other aspect of druids in that they're sometimes they're all about balance, but sometimes there's also like this this almost alien existential threat thing going on, which was kind of their role in Eberron, right? Um, They were protect. They were Eberron are awesome. Yeah, they were protecting the world from from incursion from the well. I think it was the far realm is what they called it in fourth edition. But these sort of Lovecraftian Cthuloid uh, realm between the stars sort of thing, right? So they're they're big into. 
the ending the threat or protecting the world from aberrations and that kind of stuff. There are versions of uh, was it Eberron that had like the was it the the crystal portals? Is that was that a thing in Eberron or am I making that up from something else? Hmm. Uh, I know. I know the fourth edition shard mine played off of that idea that there were these sort of crystal portals, and that's where the shard mine race came from, is they were sentient crystals that broke off the portal. But through those portals is where like the the far realm was leaking into the world, sort of thing, as I recall. And that hmm. seems like the kind of thing that druids would form a cabal uh, to to end that kind of incursion. So if you're playing some sort of threat where there's any sort of Lovecraftian connection to it at all, then then that's a di- completely different angle on a druid that I think is interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and another way you could go with it too. I mean, there's a there's a lot of crossover with naturey type things like this and Feywild type stuff. And obviously, we've got the Circle of Dreams druid from the Xanathar's Guide um, that's, that is parked right in the middle of that idea, mm-hmm. you know, of the intersection between the nature of the material world and the nature of the Fae and the crossover there. There's some good storytelling to, to run around in, in there. Uh, yeah, for a long time, druids have had uh, resistance to... The, the charm effects of the Fae um, for, for just that reason. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah. And I assume that's where the, the refusal to wear metal metal armor and metal shields, because in some of the mythologies, the touch of cold iron hurts the Fae and something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I assume there's a similar connection. Yeah, they've never been ultra explicit about why exactly, uh, why they're allowed to use metal weapons, but not metal armor. But yeah. they've always been allowed to use a scimitar and not metal armor. Um, I have sort of assumed it's... Well, there aren't a lot of ways to get um, weapons-grade metal out of the earth that don't involve destroying you know, the usability of that land. Yeah, so sure. my, I mean, my early thought, when I remember what, if I go way back to my teenage years, right, and looking at druids in, in second edition AD&D when I first was introduced to them... I sort of looked at the spell list, and it's a lot of things like sickles and scythes, and and uh, in terms of the metal, all right, that that was a lot of the stuff that you saw, and and to me it occurred to me that oh, they're they're farming implements, right? Um, and and farmers are attuned to nature, and and so there's a connection there. Now I'm not sure. I don't know the history of the scimitar well enough to know if it was ever a a farming tool in in the lands where it, where it came from. Um, so I don't well, know where like that fits into sickle. Well, I mean, yeah. cer- certainly in appearance, it has some similarities. Mm-hmm. I just didn't know if there was any lore or history there that I just didn't know about. Mm-hmm. Like, um, you know, and maybe no, it's it does. just a really convenient way to build a sword. What's that? It's just a really convenient way to build a sword. Yeah, sure. <laughs> Phenomenal for what it does. So, so yeah. Uh, I mean, other than the the scimitar seems to be the exception that proves me wrong. But other than that, uh, or or may prove me wrong. Um, but that was sort of my my thought is that it's all either stuff made out of wood or hide or whatever that you can get from nature, um, and the only exceptions like the sickle and the scythe and and whatever were farming implements, which is not not close to nature, right? Um, sure. So there was still some thematic appropriateness, yeah. and it was their well, way yeah. of, of not having a bunch of druids running around with clubs and letting them sort of get away with some some other things, you know. And yeah. specifically for sickles for years and years like all kinds of early editions 
they had to do really specific things to harvest mistletoe with particular kinds of sickles. Mm. It was this whole involved like, <laughs> rule set. It was a disaster, but we can move on. There was a lot of little fun niche things like that that, that well, um, maybe not it, the most interesting mechanically, I guess, uh, in, added a lot of interesting flavor to, to some of these classes uh, back in the day, right? Um, that we don't get into as much because we've we made the mechanics better, but and by we I mean not me. Uh, but the mechanics, <laughs> the mechanics have been made better. Um, but sometimes, you know, you could still bring back some of those rituals as flavor without having to, you know, the the sickle and the mistletoe and all that without having to um, without having to make it a, a core mechanical feature, right? Yeah, uh, right for sure. Uh, it makes a great montage, right? Right. Uh, uh, less so if it if the quality of mistletoe you harvest once a year determines how your spells are going to be for the next year. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's, that's maybe um, sticking to the, the history and the lore and the mythology to the point, uh, to the detriment of, of the larger fun of the class. Right. Sure. So, so glad to agree. yeah, we're, we're, we're well over an hour. Well, not well, over, we're a little over <laughs> an hour now. Uh, so uh, any, I- any last thoughts? Uh, Tracy does. Yes. Oh, I was just going to say, in terms of inspiration, uh, one thing that struck me too is uh, looking into historical, uh, like midwifery or to some degree witches as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, because a lot of them tend to be more nature based, uh, talking about what individual plants can give uh, to things. And also, like with a midwife, uh, you know, there's a lot of stuff going on there, including like things are just as they are. It's a neutral thing. Sometimes it has good outcomes and sometimes bad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think if you wanted to interpret Baba Yaga as a sinister druid, you'd be on real strong chicken footing. <laughs> I see what you did there. Uh-huh. <laughs> very good. Very good. Yeah. But, All right. But, but I think Tracy's dead on. Yeah. Uh, any other last thoughts? Hmm. Everybody wants to no, go out druids, and make a druid now, right? Yeah, druids are great. I want to play one. <laughs> but I'm likely to say that next time, too. <laughs> about whatever we discuss. Very good. It's That's what's great about these, right? Lots of the People hopefully are, are getting just as much inspiration out of these episodes as we are researching them, right? Oh, yeah. All right. Then I'm going to go ahead and call an end to the episode. We'd like to say thank you to our sponsor, Noble Knight, as well as to our guests. Uh, Brandis, where can people find you online? I can be found at tribality.com and at brandisstoddard.com. B-R-A-N-D-E-S-S-T-O-D-D-A-R-D. Awesome. And Lewis? Uh, the best place to find me is on Twitter at LewisBrenton. Every, everything else I do can be tracked from there. Awesome. And Ishmael? Oh, nope, we can't hear you, Ishmael. That's why we haven't heard much from him in a while. <laughs> <laughs> he even moved. So not a great back. time to ask him how he can be reached because we clearly don't know how he can be reached. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we have to get a circle out. <laughs> Ishmael, I'm calling you, Ishmael. See, see. 
I assume he can hear us. Oh, he dropped out of the call. Alright, should I just continue? <laughs> Maybe he's gonna pop back oh, in. Hello? There he is! Okay, I don't know what was going on. I, I, oh, for, my mic was, like, not functioning for, like, the second half of that conversation. Uh. Anyways, <laughs> I'll, be, I'll be super brief. I can be reached on Twitter at ElvinWizardKing. Um, that's pretty much the best place to find uh, but uh, yeah, there or on Drive Through RPG or Fat Goblin Game. There you go. Awesome. And we'd also like to say thanks to all of you for supporting the show by shopping from our affiliate links when you use Amazon or DMs Guild, or being a patron of the show at the at patreon.com slash the tome show. If you want to get a hold of us, Tracy and myself, or honestly any of these other fellows, uh, I'd be happy to to forward messages you can email the tome show at gmail.com you can call the biz line at 919 biz tome uh you can reach tracy on twitter she is at sarah dark magic that's sarah with an h dark magic it's all one word no no underscores or anything in there i am at squatch s-q-u-a-c-h uh and i also run at the tome show um which is you know the 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 show's twitter Awesome. And that's episode 298, where we got a little bestial in this episode of... You don't dress up to play D&D. You don't dress up to play D&D. You don't dress up to play D&D. Unless you want to, like me. You don't dress up to play D&D. You don't dress up to play D&D. You don't dress up to play D&D. Unless you want to, like me. You don't think we fancy. Let me teach you about class. Priest, fighter, rogue, cats to kick your ass. You don't think we street. Look at this table full of rice. You don't think we hard. Just touch my dice. You don't think we can get it. After birds and the bees. I'm a pallet in the suits, but a thief in the shoes. My character shoots because they fold to the brim. With maxed out sass, out to effort my DM. He think he in charge. We don't worry about him. Simple when he out to get us. Be like Jack the Swam. Master player, traitor, master creator. Look at me, master NPC. Generator. Just cause she a master doesn't mean you have to hate her Got a boy, I don't need to be no master later I don't care if over there your character is dying Cause it's just like baseball, there's no crying You wanna join in, now you start realizing We're the cool, cool nerds, call me Neil deGrasse Tyson D to the R to the A, good S, D and D The dungeon master sets up a scenario Then he or she asks where would you like to go? We talk as a group, then decide together. There's no winning, yo. We could play forever. Stay right there, let me answer your questions. I'll clear up all your misconceptions. Stay right there, let me answer your questions. I'll clear up all your misconceptions. You don't dress up to play D and D. You don't dress up to play D and D. You don't dress up to play D and D unless you want to, like me. You don't dress up to play D and D. D&D. You don't dress up to play D&D unless you want to, like me. You don't dress up to play D&D. You don't dress up to play D&D. You don't dress up to play D&D unless you want to, like me. You don't dress up to play D&D. You don't dress up to play D&D. You don't dress up to play D&D unless you want to, like me. I'm off the wall.